Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We're starting to get more queries about where to find the next big thing. And to be honest, it's always a query, but when markets are running hot and people have done super well, like they have after the last 18 months, they're not so worried about it. At the moment, though, a lot of people seem to be feeling that their portfolios are running out of steam and uh, and they want to know how to add a bit more value. So today I'm joined by Eleanor Swanson, equity analyst from Firetrail Investments, who is focused on small caps and has a background in science and technology, which allows her to keep an eye on small companies and those with the potential to become something very, very big. Eleanor, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on the show, Gemma. So, Eleanor, there's a heap of cool stories. I was doing a little piece of research for this that you're featured in in the press where you talk about your pounding the table to convince the team at Firetrail to buy Afterpay. And I think that will resonate so strongly with so many people who are listening. Can you tell us a bit about that and how it how it plays into your investment philosophy? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so uh, that was one of, uh, I guess, my most exciting earliest uh, investments uh, with the team. Um, and so, you know, we, we were kind of aware of Afterpay, you know, when it first started out in Australia. And then I think we got really interested, you know, when they were kind of making their plans about going to the US, you know, more public. And that that was kind of the catalyst for us to do some more work. Um, and so for those not familiar, I'm sure most people are familiar with Afterpay, but it's effectively lay-by in reverse. So it just allows you to get your item up front and then you can extend the payments over six weeks. And I think that was a concept that really played more into, you know, the millennial mindset. You know, if you've been at university, you know, you're perhaps waiting tables or, you know, working in a retail shop and you kind of need to pad out your pay um, a little bit further. It's a great way to do that. Whereas a lot of, um, you know, the women and um, men in the team, you know, a little bit older, you know, the concept didn't really resonate with them. So I think that was probably, you know, why um, I was pounding the table and kind of bringing a bit of a different viewpoint. Um, And I guess the way it feeds into our investment philosophy. So a key part of how we approach investing is we are actually look at the two or three things that matter to a company. So two or three key things we think are going to drive the share price performance over the next three years. And for Afterpay, we'd seen what they'd built in Australia, an incredible business. They had, you know, about 40% share of millennials um, in this market. And there was this huge opportunity for them to replicate that in the US. And at this stage, you know, the share price was around $15. You know, the market was a bit skeptical as to whether they could do that. A lot of us Australian companies have tried to crack the US and failed. Uh, And so what we were really kind of focused on from a what matters perspective is firstly, customer additions and how those customers were behaving. And then the second side of the platform, which is the retailers. So we started to get a lot of conviction in the US uh, business once we saw that they'd signed up, you know, some of those giants like Urban Outfitters um, and, and Sephora and a few of the bigger players in that market. And that gave us conviction that they would pretty rapidly start to add customers because it's just free marketing for them being at checkout at some of these enormous retailers that are selling products to, you know, eight to 10 million customers over in the US. Um, and so that's when we got the conviction. We'd seen how customers had behaved in Australia go from using Afterpay, you know, three times a year to up to 20 times or more per year. So that frequency of spend just drives an enormous uplift in revenue. 
given the size of the US market, if they even got, you know, a fraction of the millennial consumers they had in Australia, you know, say 5% of millennials in the US, they would be building an enormous uh, platform over there. So we felt there was potential for significant upside. I did an investment committee to the team. You know, I felt that there was potential for the afterpay share price to get to $50, if not more, if some of these trends played out the way we'd seen in Australia. Um, and so I pitched the stock, um, pounded the table, got afterpay um, into the fund and it's been an incredible uh, stock to have in the portfolio and it's done very well for us. Yeah, it's done extremely well. And there would be, I imagine no one listening who hasn't at least followed the afterpay share price, but it's different to follow the uh, the trajectory of the company rather than just the share price. I love you talking about the older members of the team. I think one of the biggest challenges in investing is you do have to be a bit cynical because people promise a lot of things, particularly small companies and startups. There's always uh, the founders have to bring a lot of energy and excitement to the table to get anyone to invest. And you have to kind of be a bit cynical sometimes, but that cynicism doesn't always work, right? You want to be able to see the great opportunities as well. Do you think there's a bit of a a challenge for the people who've been around a long time to change their thinking and and see the opportunities that make more sense to a millennial audience? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a healthy thing in an investment team to have debate um, and you need people in the team who are cynical because then they push you to do more work and either increase your conviction in your thesis, your investment thesis, or actually realise that there are some holes in the thesis. Maybe, you know, there is cause for concern and perhaps, you know, the investment's not as rock solid as maybe you thought at the beginning. So you do want that healthy debate. And so, I mean, some of the things we did to kind of get a bit more conviction in in that afterpay investment thesis was, you know, we spoke with, you know, a huge number of customers, retailers, because a big pushback, you know, I got on the investment thesis was, you know, retailers have pretty slim margins, you know, they're operating at, you know, 10% EBIT margins, you know, maybe 15% if they're lucky. Um, so if you're giving up, you know, 4%, you're paying away to afterpay, you know, that's a significant portion of your profit margins. Why are retailers doing this? So, you know, we did a huge number of calls with retailers in Australia and over in the US as well. And we just got consistent feedback that the product was delivering an uplift in terms of average order value and also frequency of spend. And that's incredibly important to a retailer. Top line is that, you know, their number one priority so they felt that the return on investment of paying that 4% to afterpay absolutely stacked up. So, you know, having those conversations with people on the ground in the industry is a really great way to, um, I guess, firm up an investment thesis. And then from the consumer side, you know, we just had this incredible data on how customers were responding to the afterpay platform. We were tracking app downloads, um, website visits. Um, you know, we were getting metrics from retailers on how the customer behavior was changing. And so that gave us really, I guess, strong data and conviction facts that actually supported the investment thesis. And at that point, that's when you get real confidence and you're able to build, you know, a decent, you know, position in your fund because, you know, you've done the work and you've kind of, I guess, dotted your I's and crossed your T's. Um, and so that's what that healthy debate in a team does. It pushes you to make sure you've done really good work um, and you're backing yourself into the, into the investment. Oh, I love that. I uh, I find with Afterpay, I always kick myself for not getting on it a little bit earlier. I was, um, or I am often on uh, 
social media groups are about design and and home design and whatever. It's just a thing that I love and I find it fascinating let's say three years ago, maybe it was four years ago, suddenly on all of these groups, people would be posting a particular design item that everyone was very excited about at the time. And all of the comments would be, oh, that's amazing. I love it so much. Do they have afterpay? And I remember going, these items are like a hundred bucks. They're not terribly expensive. And, you know, $50, right? They weren't necessarily super expensive items. They weren't thousands of dollars where you would ordinarily expect someone to need credit in order to be able to buy it. But so many of the commenters were wanting to know if the retailer had afterpay in order to just make the decision to buy the product. I was fascinated by it at the time. It was popping up everywhere and uh, and deeply annoyed with myself as an investor for not getting on it earlier because I'd seen it in so many places. Uh-huh. Although that was right? anecdotal. And Gemma, I think that's a great point, you know, for anyone listening to the podcast, you know, if you are hearing chatter, you know, amongst your group of friends and, you know, suddenly you're seeing a brand name popping up all the time and and you can go and explore whether it's listed. I mean, that can be a great catalyst for an investment because I mean, back to my initial point around, you know, being a millennial and having a bit of a different perspective to the rest of the investment team, you know, I was hearing from all my friends that they loved Afterpay, you know, they were using it all the time. And that was why I kind of was confident to have a completely different point of view, even though I was a younger member of the team. Um, and, you know, I, I, it was great because they backed me to go and do the work. So I think listening to what people are saying in the industry, on the ground, your friends, you know, it can be a good catalyst to go and have a look at whether that's a potential, you know, investment opportunity and get in early. I think also social media gives you access to these weren't my friends, these weren't people I knew. It gives you access to a very wide range of opinions that you wouldn't otherwise have access to at a very personal level. You know, it's like having a chat with someone. And if you're into digital marketing, anyone who's listening, it's called social chatter. And there are companies who literally uh, glean this data from social media and then sell it back to large companies like ours uh, so that we know what's going on on social media. But if you're actually using the social media, you're seeing it yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a great source of ideas, I I think, social media, because you really, yes, as you say, at that personal level, seeing what people are genuinely saying about a product or a brand. It's uh, it's quite fascinating to me. I mean, I I haven't used it as a a model, but uh, early example, your focus is small companies, and I was about to ask you about how you came up with some ideas. So you've already alluded to some, a lot of our investors are looking to pick up the next big thing. Uh, at the smaller end of the market. What are you really trying to find when you're looking in that space? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, with our, so I work for the Fire Trail Small Companies Fund and we've got a very broad mandate. So we're happy to play in the growth part of the market. You know, I guess Australian companies that have developed a great product and then they're looking to take it offshore and really grow the business. But we're also happy to play in the value part of the market. You know, so if we believe that um, a company is being mispriced um, and there's actually just potential for share price outperformance once the market realizes their expectations for that company were too low, we're happy to play there. So I guess what a few kind of points um, around our investment philosophy is we believe that every company has a price. So we're really looking to go out and find companies that look undervalued um, and will actually build a model, understand the drivers of that business, and then figure out if we believe there's potential for that company to beat in terms of earnings expectations, or maybe if it's more of a growth company, if there's potential for them to beat on top line growth and gross 
margins. Um, so I guess, yeah, two things there. We're looking for companies that are undervalued and then companies that, you know, have the ability to beat the market's expectations because that's really where you, where you see share price outperformance. Another point I'd make is that uh, we really like to find an angle on a company. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, something that maybe the market hasn't cottoned onto yet. So a good example would be Beacon Lighting, which we've had in the fund for about 18 months now. And that's a, um, a vertically integrated lighting retailer. You know, it sells direct to consumers. But something we cottoned onto recently is that they're actually looking to pivot into trade. So selling to tradies, you know, they sell lighting goods, but they're wanting to expand into, you know, more of the back of wall fittings and switches. Um, and that's a huge market. So the retail market's a billion dollars, the trade market's $2 billion, you know, so they're effectively increasing their market 3x. Um, and they're very confident they can do that. They're, they're working with Reese, who's done incredibly well um, in trade. Uh, and so we got, got onto that early and the market's starting to get excited about Beacon's, you know, trade strategy and the potential for the, the business to significantly grow over the next five years. So that's what we're really trying to do is, um, you know, find an angle on a company, you know, something that makes us different to what other investors are looking at and means that the company has the potential potential to beat market expectations. The stocks you've mentioned so far are extremely tangible, I guess, for investors. They're very accessible. They're name brands that people who watch the block or <laughs> who go to Bunnings and drive past Reese on the way and so on would, would know and have some feel for, which is really interesting. Yeah. Your training is in science though, and this is where things get a little more complex for retail investors because a lot of investors want to get on to the next big biotech, for example, uh, and any kind of, and particularly medical biotechnology where there's plenty of opportunity, but it's more complex to get a feel for the companies involved. Can you tell us a bit about how you approach that? Yeah, sure. So, so basically, um, my background, um, I did a science degree, I majored in immunology. And so I spent, you know, 20 hours, 30 hours a week in a laboratory, um, actually looking at clinical data. So that really helps, you know, when we're looking at these early biotech companies that are still in that clinical trial phase. And it is, Gemma, as you mentioned, a bit more challenging given that, you know, these companies don't have revenue yet, they don't have earnings. So it's a bit tricky when you're looking at, at it from a valuation perspective. But the way we think about it is we're looking at the clinical trial phase that the company's at. So, you know, if it's a phase one clinical trial, that's super early. It's very, very speculative. Um, there's a pretty low chance that they're going to get all the way through to commercialization. Um, you know, about 60% of phase one trials move into phase two, about 30% of phase twos move into a phase three, and then about 50 to 60% of those phase threes actually go up for FDA approval. And then you haven't made it yet. You've still got to get through those FDA hurdles. Um, they're not only looking at clinical data, they're also looking at your manufacturing processes. So there's about an 85% chance that the drug will get approved once they, it gets to FDA. So if we think about, you know, all those kind of risk hurdles um, that they've got to get through at each phase, that should feed through to valuation. So we would expect a company that's in a phase three clinical trial to have a much higher valuation than something in a phase one, purely because the chances of them getting approved are so much higher. Then we're very much focused on the clinical data they've produced, you know, is it quality data? Have they produced it in a proper, you know, phase, um, 
controlled randomized trial you know that's the gold standard and how good is that data compared to standard of care you know are we seeing that the drug being trialed is actually improving patient outcomes uh, is it st- statistically significant uh, and are we seeing that in a patient population that's relevant um, you know to doctors and the like so there's a few things we look at we're also looking at the size of the patient population um, and then we're thinking about you know the likelihood of, of that particular drug you know getting a certain market share will actually build a model um, and, and value, you know, the potential upside from that drug getting commercialized and then we'll risk weight our, um, our valuation. So that's how we think about biotechs. In terms of, I guess, some of the things, space areas, the biotech market we think look interesting. Um, one is molecular targeted radiation. Um, so there's a few companies in that space. Um, Telix Pharmaceuticals would be the most mature. It's actually got a number of phase three trials underway. Uh, there's a few uh, younger players, you know, they're kind of more in the phase one, phase two stage, Clarity, uh, Radio Farm, both listed recently. And these companies are basically looking to improve um, imaging for cancer patients and also therapeutics. So it's a really interesting space. Um, it's actually been around for a long time, but they're just improving existing processes. Uh, and we also really like um, the immunotherapy space. So that's basically where you're taking the body's own immune system um, and using it to fight, you know, tumors and disease and viruses. Um, so great company um, in that space, which we think is very undervalued at the moment. It's actually heading into a phase three and that's Immutep. So that's focused on the oncology market. So yeah, there's there's a lot to discuss in the biotech space. There's a, a lot of really high quality names in, in Australia, but there's also, you know, the potential um, for a lot of downside if they miss on those, um, you know, those trial results. So it is something where there's a lot of alpha potential, but, you know, we do feel like you need to have a bit of a background um, in the science space to be able to make a, a good judgment call on whether that company is likely to get to commercial stage. Yeah, I think that's an excellent summary. It's an area that a lot of people are very interested but don't have access to the data or, you know, have trouble interpreting it. And it's also highly competitive at a global level. So the fact that you're looking at companies in Australia, if you're not across what's happening globally, the competitive advantage may be eroded really, really quickly if someone's got a patent in before you do, for example. Uh, Yes. are, Are there any other areas, you know, in the biotech space that you're interested at the moment? Yeah, so I mean, I might give you an example of a company that's actually commercialized a product, um, but it is a biotech stock. Um, so the the company is Aroa Biosurgery, um, and they they play in the wound care space. So they've actually developed um, products over you know the last fifteen years using sheep stomachs. So they're a New Zealand based company. So kind of not surprising that it's focused on sheep, I suppose. Um, but it's a, a really interesting technology because it's quite unique in what they do. They they basically take the sheep stomach, but then they actually interweave a synthetic polymer. So it strengthens um, the biologic, which a lot of other players don't do, which means that that biologic degrades. Um, and Aroa is currently in the US. They've got five commercialized products. It's a very large addressable market, two and a half billion dollars. And the company's recently raised capital. So they're very well capitalized to build out their sales force. They've got a differentiated product with really strong clinical data that 
shows the wounds heal faster and you also see a much lower rate of recurrence in the wounds. So they play in hernias, um, you know, hard to heal wounds, um, you know, diabetic foot ulcers um, and the like. Um, so we're, we're really excited about that company over the next uh, 12 months. And we actually think it's a really good entry point for investors because people are a little bit worried with, um, you know, the new variant of the virus that access to these sales reps to hospitals is going to get tougher. Therefore, it's going to be tougher to sell their product. But actually what we're seeing is that Aroa is continuing to add sales reps um, in order to sell their technology uh, into these US hospitals. So yeah, we, we think that's a really interesting stock at, at these prices. That's a really interesting example. Can you give me an idea of what proportion of your fund is in the sort of medical biotech space? It'd be quite interesting to know. Yeah, yeah. So we'd have about 5% of the fund um, in the biotech space. Um, the reason it's not higher is we do, when we're, um, I guess, forming our, our position sizing within the fund, take into account risk. Um, and just given some of these stocks are, you know, in clinical trial phase, um, the outcomes are a little bit more binary than, you know, say for a more typical industrial company. So as a result, we will factor that into our position sizing, um, you know, and take into account that additional volatility in the stock. And so I guess it means that if, if the stock does come off and the clinical trial comes off, there's enormous upside there and our investors get the benefit, but also on the downside, you know, we're mitigate, mitigating that risk for our investors. So yeah, about 5% of the fund at the moment. You may have answered my question already or the question that's about to come, but do you therefore pick stocks that have much higher upside because they're a smaller proportion of the portfolio? Yes, yes, we are looking for significant upside in that space. Um, as you say, Gemma, just because, um, you know, there is a little bit more risk there. So, you know, if we are going to take a position, you know, we want to see kind of 100% plus upside um, to justify it being in the portfolio. Whereas, you know, in industrial stock, you know, we're kind of more comfortable with, you know, 30% upside just because, you know, there's a little bit less risk there. So, yes, that is how we, we think about it uh, within our fund. I don't know to what extent our investors take the same approach, but certainly, you know, once people move outside uh, the more traditional stocks they hold in their portfolio, and I've just finished uh, summarising the top 10 most traded for 2021 for a a piece that's going in the Australian, uh, which are all, you know, really high quality, well-capitalized companies, you know, blue chips that people would know. And they make up over 50% of our portfolio, the top 10. You know, it's quite amazing how concentrated retail investors are. But once you get out of that top 10, uh, when people are willing to take a bit more risk, they really want to see something that's got a lot of upside. It's worth noting clearly a lot of our investors, another piece that came out of the um the data that I'm pulling together at the moment is that it's very clear investors are feeling the market's a bit toppy. So our cash levels are extremely high at the moment. There's been a bit of a shift to trimming portfolios rather than buying. Uh, clearly investors feel that there's some downside risk and it may be Omicron they're concerned about or simply the fact the market's come back so strongly over the last 18 months, nearly two years now. Are there areas that you are concerned that you know, investors are paying too much or that there's a lot of downside risk? 
Yeah, so I'd firstly say, Gemma, that we definitely wouldn't say that we're ever trying to pick the market. So, you know, we're always fully invested throughout the cycle and, you know, we don't take a view, you know, we wouldn't put, you know, 10% of the fund in cash purely because we think the market might go down over the next 12 months because we just look over history and it is almost impossible to pick, you know, a market downturn or an upswing. I mean, who who would have thought that, you know, back in March, we were about to head into one of the biggest bull markets, you know, of the last 10 years. So, you know, we never try to time the market. Um, and that that's why I think our investment process is so important where we're very focused on valuation and market expectations. And that really does help you, I guess, um, avoid some of those, um, you know, massive misses, um, you know, where stocks trade down, you know, rapidly, there's a big change in sentiment. We also stay very close to management teams. So, you know, we're on top of, you know, what they're thinking in terms of the future, you know, are they feeling positive or negative? And, and we can factor that into our, you know, share price targets. I mean, I guess a, a few areas maybe where we're a little bit more cautious at the moment, um, you know, we think uh, capital events and IPOs have done incredibly well over the last 18 months. Um, and we're be- being a little bit more cautious in making sure we go for very high quality names. You know, we're doing more due diligence than ever in terms of talking to, you know, customers, management teams. Um, and we're very conscious that um, the valuation does stack up um, for our investors. And if it doesn't, we're just not going to play there. So I'd say we're, I guess, a little bit cautious on the IPO market over the next 12 months. And then I, I do feel like, you know, we have seen a few downgrades in the tech names in the US, um, you know, over the the last month. Um, and so I think a really important thing for investors to watch there is just to make sure that they understand uh, what market expectations are for those companies. Um, and then, you know, I guess, staying on top of what management's saying, you know, are they flagging any risks? Because those stocks are trading on, you know, very elevated multiples. So if they do miss expectations, you know, they can derate pretty quickly. So that's something we're watching as well. So, um, yeah, I think, I think, but overall, you know, we always stay fully invested. You know, we're always out hunting um, for companies that we believe look undervalued uh, and we believe can beat market expectations. And we think that's the best way to generate consistent alpha, you know, over a long period period of time. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I don't think I've ever discussed it on the podcast. There are some fund managers who will take active positions in cash uh, and trim their portfolios when they feel things are overvalued and others who go, you're paying me to invest and that's what I'm going to do. If you want to go to cash, you can sell down part of your portfolio rather than me doing it on your behalf. Uh, and it's, you know, there'll be times that some are right and others uh, where a different group are correct, but um, if you're paying a fund manager to invest on your behalf, uh, in your case, you take the position that you will invest <laughs> rather than uh, sitting on the sidelines, perhaps being concerned yeah, about where the market is. Exactly, and, and you know we we think it's a far greater risk um, to our investors if we've you know taken an active decision in terms of what the market's going to do over the next twelve months and gone to cash, and then they're missing you know an enormous rally because we've made that decision. Whereas they're expecting us to you know be fully invested in equities, um, and so that's what we deliver. And you know if you look over you know a long time horizon, you know thirty years, the market has delivered on average 7% returns to investors. So we do think it pays to just hold your portfolio um, and take a bit of a longer term view rather than trying to time the market. It's incredibly difficult to do that. 
Yeah, there's there's plenty of evidence out there that very, very few people are good at timing the market. And it's one thing to be able to do it once, but timing it consistently is extremely difficult, <laughs> extremely yes. difficult, even for the best. One final question, any other areas that you're particularly excited about at the moment? You've mentioned uh, science and biotech stocks, which I think is really exciting and certainly some areas that people will want to take a closer look at uh, and also some I want to call them retail stocks, I guess, but um, but they're clearly in the building, uh, yes. in the building and resources, building materials, not building and resources uh, area. Anything else that's really appealing to you at the moment? Yeah, so we think there's a few companies out there who've maybe seen a bit of a benefit um, as a result of COVID and, you know, the, the kind of the reopening trade. But we think that the market's actually um, underestimating some structural factors that we believe means they can sustain their top line numbers um, and beat market expectations. So I'll touch on two names that, that we believe um, are in this bucket. So the first one is Silk Laser Clinics. I'm not sure if you've come across. It, it actually listed um, end of last year um, and it plays in the, the beauty clinic space. So it provides services such as injectables, skin treatments, laser hair remo- removal, and it's the second largest player after um, Laser Clinics Australia. They recently bought a business called Australian Skin Clinics. So they've gone from having about 56 clinics to now having close to 120 clinics across Australia. Um, And we're seeing incredible growth um, at the top line in terms of the injectables market in particular, um, but also really strong growth in some of their other product lines, such as body contouring and skin products. So I think the market's a little bit sceptical that some of that growth has been driven by, you know, the reopening trade and people being unable to travel but what we actually see is that um, their revenue is very much recurring. So, you know, a, a customer will come in for an appointment and then they'll rebook, you know, another four or five appointments off the back of that. So it's quite consistent revenue um, from one particular customer. Um, and they've also actually, as a result of doing this acquisition, got the potential to realize some pretty big synergies. So, you know, they buy a product from some of the big um, players in, in Botox, such as Galderma um, and Allergan. And as a result of consolidating these two businesses together, we believe there's significant opportunity for them to realize some big synergies um, and beat the market's uh, earnings numbers over the next 12 months. So top line's great, um, and we believe they can beat it bottom line as well. Uh, Another one we really like is Ardent Leisure. Um, So I think a lot of people associate that with Dreamworld um, up on the Gold Coast, uh, but actually about 90% of the value of Ardent Leisure sits within its main event business. Um, Main event basically operates arcades and big entertainment centres across the US. And we've seen that they've delivered per centre about 10 mil of revenue relative to 7 mil pre-COVID. So just an enormous uplift of about 40%. Um, versus pre-COVID numbers. I think it's fair to say that some of that is related to the reopening where, you know, people want to go out and um, spend time with family and friends and have fun. Um, But we do think there's actually been a structural shift in that business and that at least eight and a half to nine mil um, is sustainable um, revenue per centre. And so we we think that company is likely to beat market expectations. We also think it looks really cheap relative to its peer set. You know, we look at it versus Dave and Buster's um, and also Bolero in the US. They traded about 10 times 
times EV EBITDA, whereas main events trading at about uh, six times EV EBITDA. So they're two of the names we like. Um, you know, we think uh, people are underestimating um, the ability of these companies to sustain their earnings over the next, you know, two to three years. I love both those examples. I think they're very tangible for investors and people can have a strong feel for what that company is and what it does and what it might offer. I think the injectables one is a uh, a very interesting example. I would have guessed recurring revenue as well. If you go for any of the facial changes that might come about from injectables or any of the laser hair removal or whatever, I imagine that's quite a difficult thing to stop. Yes. It would be something where, where there'd be quite a significant change to your appearance if you kind of make one appointment and then don't go back a second time. Yeah, and it's very much playing into that premiumization, you know, thematic where we're seeing people, you know, spending more on beauty and hair care and the next progression is kind of actually going to a clinic and getting a professional to help with your skin routine or whatever that might be. So, yeah, we think that's actually quite a structural trend, that premiumization of women spending more on, you know, health and beauty. That's amazing. Eleanor, you're a regular on many great sources of ideas and insights for investors. Where should people go to find out more about you and what you're working on? Yes. So uh, Firetrail Investments has a website uh, and we publish uh, performance reports monthly um, and also quarterly. So really great for investors or, you know, potential investors to find out more about the fund. Um, You know, myself and my colleague, Matthew Fist, you know, we we try to um, stay active on on media and podcasts. So um, hopefully you'll see us popping up and and we do um, post that on our LinkedIn profile, which is, yeah, I guess all through the Firetrail Investments brands. So if you're wanting to learn more, I direct you to the Firetrail Investments website. Eleanor Swanson from Firetrail Investments, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Gemma. Really enjoyed being on the show. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We receive fantastic feedback from you guys. Love getting your questions and suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear about. So please just email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.